Father, I pray for your spirit to come and fill uh, whatever words are spoken right now. I pray I wouldn't speak too much or beyond what you would have to say, but I pray, uh, Lord, that you would speak directly and clearly to our hearts so that we, um, this is not just a church, just we're doing our duty to come to church and listen to the pastor. I pray that we would uh, have a desperate need filled to hear the voice of our creator uh, teach us the way we should go. It says in the Psalms, blessed is the man who who hears your words and does them. Lord, we want to be that type of man, those people. And uh, a lot of us in here are hurting and need great, great assistance and grace from you. And Father, I pray that you would meet every one of those needs over and above and beyond what we could ever ask or even imagine. Father, we place ourselves in dependence upon you, and I pray that you would speak truly and clearly to our hearts. Amen. Amen. The curious case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Malik. Obviously, I am referencing Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, right? You guys heard of that? All right. That was this guy, uh, just to tell you a story, the guy, um, this guy is doing some reporting. He's investigating his friend, Dr. Jekyll, who also turns in at night to some fearsome, murderous, schizophrenic uh, guy named Mr. Hyde. Okay? But we changed the name Hyde to Malik because what we're going to be talking about today is you and how schizophrenic you are. We are very schizophrenic as Christians. We have two natures inside us. The first nature is our flesh. It is what we were born with. Every son of Adam, everyone who came from Adam, which is all of you, we all were born with this flesh nature. And this nature is the same as Adam's, which at the very heart of it longs and loves to rebel against authority. Adam proved it when God said, don't do this. And Adam said, I'm going to do that. Right? So we are born with that same rebellious tendency and flesh. It's still alive in you today. But the moment someone says, Jesus, save me, and I believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross for me, the moment that happens, God implants a portion of his own soul and spirit and heart into us, and we are granted an additional nature. He doesn't take away the first nature completely. You still are just as fleshly and sinful in, in tendency as you were before. But he grants a new nature that is going to now go at war with the old nature. And that's why Christians struggle and, and, and war. You may have heard of the battle between the flesh and the spirit. The spirit, that grants you, or the spirit that's been granted to you goes to war against the flesh. And the flesh is not too crazy about fighting this war. The flesh wants to live and the flesh wants to win. And we're going to see that all the, that we're going to see today speaks to this battle between the flesh and the spirit. Last week, we were in the first part of chapter 17. As you know, we go verse by verse through scripture, so we'll be in chapter 18 next week. Uh, but in the first part, we saw that Moses, the people got thirsty, and Moses struck the rock that God showed him, and out of that rock flowed water. And that water met the needs, and that water was, do you remember what that water was? Do you remember what the rock was first? What was the rock? It was Jesus, right? The New Testament tells us that rock was Jesus. It's a perfect picture of Jesus struck. And as he is struck and crucified and killed, 
His life is then given to us, pouring out of the brokenness that he was. And that life, that water, what did that speak of? The Holy Spirit. Ten points for Jesus points for Jody. You never know when you're just going to fly out Jesus points. It's going to be good. So yeah, speak up. No. It was the Holy Spirit. And we see that Jesus later, when he came, there was a great feast, of, uh, and Jesus stood up in the middle of that feast. And what was going on during that feast is people would bring buckets of water, and they would bring these buckets of water to the temple, and they would hand it to the priest, and the priest would take the bucket, and he would pour it out on the steps, and, and he would pour it down the steps. And I've stood on those steps in Jerusalem. And this, the water would just create this continual... because. Millions of people are coming to Jerusalem for this feast, and, and they're all bringing a bucket of water, and, and the priests report, so it just created this river of water flowing down these rock steps. And you know how water flowing like just makes you thirsty, makes you have to pee too, but makes you thirsty. <laughs> and you're like, oh, that would just be so good. But Jesus, during the midst of all that, that's the setting, he stood up and he said, if anyone thirsts, if anyone's thirsty, Let him come to me and drink, and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And this, he said, concerning the Holy Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. Okay, so the Holy Spirit. So that all pictures the the new life that comes into someone. Now we get to the second half, and and we're going to see the battle between that spirit that we drink in and that satisfies us and the old flesh that's still inside us. Okay. How many of you have drunk, drunk of that, that water? The water of the Holy Spirit. You've, you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, and you, you know that it's good. You drink it both. Okay. You know it's good. I, I, I mean, we know that. But yet there's another part inside us, this flesh. It is the natural enemy of the Spirit. These guys are enemies. Your life is the natural enemy of the Jesus life that is granted to you when you believed and you were saved. Your natural life. It doesn't, it's not compatible with the Jesus life. One of them is going to have to die. All right? I'm going to read a quote from a book called The Saving Life of Christ. You read that book? You read that book? Good book, guys, uh, by Major Ian Thomas. I'm going to read a quote from that book. It says, this is why God must bring about a weakness in the flesh. The desert is a place of soul suffering. The intent of this work of the Spirit is to make us weaker in self so that we may become more dependent on the Lord. We will not be perfect, sorry, excuse me, we will not perfect the power of God within our inner being until we have been driven into an absolute dependence on God to direct and empower our every step, okay? Absolute dependence on God is what God is looking for. What does that, that means absolute dependence on the Spirit, on the life of Jesus, not on what you bring, but on what he gives, so I want to read to you, before we get started on Nexus, I want to read to you First uh, Peter 4.2. And First Peter 4.2, he says this. 4.1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh for us, arm yourselves with the same mind. Think the same way. You're going to suffer too. 
For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. That describes the battle and how it's going to end. Your flesh is going to die. Jesus will win. So let's begin our text now in Exodus chapter 17, starting verse 8 says, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Now, if you just started there, you might think, okay, we're just getting into a war here. But remember the context. They are in the middle of nowhere. They're God has led them. He's leading them by the cloud and the fire and, and they've gone through the Red Sea and now they're in the middle of Saudi Arabian desert where it's just mountains and there's like nothing. They were super thirsty. They got to Rephidim, which means, anyone remember what Rephidim means? Places of rest. Who got that? 20 Jesus points serenity. I'm just tossing out Jesus points today. Well, Jesus, what am I saying? They're in the middle of nowhere, the middle of nowhere in this place called Rephidim, which means places of, re- places of rest, but there was nothing there until they cried out to the Lord and, and the Lord provided water out of the rock. So they're just sitting there drinking the water. They're like, oh, Jesus is so good, you know, oh, drinking the water. Enough water for two and a half million people. So this is like a big lake. So they're having a lakeside chill session. They've got volleyball going on. You know, they got some coolers. They're, they're having a good time. And then, all of a sudden, Amalek comes out of nowhere and attacks them. Like, full-on attacks them. Now, do they have any weapons at all? No. So these are just like, the children of Israel are like, ah, and they've got to fight these guys, okay? Now, this is the first battle these people have fought uh, since coming out of Egypt and being uh, set free. God has done all the fighting for them so far. They didn't know how to fight at the beginning when they were being delivered and going through the Red Sea, so God had to just usher them through, and then God used the water to defeat their enemies, okay? And, and this is really significant, extremely significant, that this is the first battle the people of God face in their new life. This is the first battle they face in their new life because what is Amalek going to represent? The flesh. Amalek is going to represent the flesh. Throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit has decided for us to constantly use themes, okay? Uh, to constantly help us to understand. And some of those are explicitly stated in the New Testament, like the rock was Jesus. So we have that in our mind. And other ones we have to kind of infer, but we can see that it's a clear lesson. And this is one of those lessons. The Holy Spirit has taught us that Amalek is a type of the flesh. He's a picture of the flesh. Why do I know that so certainly? Because Amalek is the grandson of anybody know? This is extra credit. Esau? Whoa, 80 points extra credit for you. She's all, ding. (laughs) Esau. And who was Esau? He was Jacob's twin brother, right? And Jacob's name got changed to what? Israel. So these Amalekites are cousins of the Israelites. They come from the same people, the same blood, but they come from the Esau side. Now, we studied Jacob and Esau as we went through Genesis, right? And we studied that, that Jacob was the weak guy, right? He, his thing was like cooking and cleaning 
And that was like where he felt comfortable. And any time it came to working and, and fighting, Jacob was like, not it, right? He, he just didn't excel in those types. But Esau was the opposite. Esau's very name was Harry Stinky Man. You know, that was his, that's what his name translates kind of vaguely into. Is <laughs> paraphrase. That's the message right there. <laughs> Bible this. Okay. Well, so Esau, it says, has big muscles, has lots of hair, lots of BO, and every time he goes somewhere, he's like, I'm a man and I can do this. And he, his favorite thing was like hunting and killing animals, and, and his dad loved him. He was like a man's man. He could do it. He could do it. But that heart and what Esau had was that he felt like he didn't need God, and, and he passed that along to his descendants. And all throughout history, the descendants of Esau become the enemies of the people of Israel. The people of Israel acknowledged that they were weak, that they were wrong, and they couldn't fight their own battles. That's what Jacob eventually became as he was transformed by God into Israel. When he just said, God, I'm done. I need you to bless me. I'm, I'm surrender to you, and I need you to be my deliverer, my savior. That's the people of Israel. That's their heart. It's a heart of humility versus Esau and his descendants, which is the heart of pride and self-sufficiency. So the descendants of Esau, all throughout Scripture, I want you guys to learn this lesson. They will typify this self-sufficiency, the flesh, they will picture it for us. And there are other names for the descendants of Esau. One other name is Edomites. Have you ever heard of Edomites? The entire book of Amos is about how much God hates the Edomites. Okay? And it's not because he just doesn't like them because they're weird. It's because they have a heart that they got from Esau, which is we don't need God. We are fine without God. We want God out of our schools. We want God out of everything. That is the heart of self-sufficiency, rebellion against God. Amalekites were, one, were the grandson of these. They're right in that line. That's why this is extremely spiritually significant for us, that this is the first war that the people of Israel face, the flesh. Self-life. Now, I'm going to pause here and we're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 25 because it tells us how this battle happened. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17. God tells the people of Israel, this is after uh, 40 years of them being in the desert, and then he's reminding them what happened 40 years ago. Anyone remember something that happened 40 years ago? Not me, because I wasn't born yet. <laughs> Kurt, you remember something 40 years ago? Oh, okay. All right. Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. It's hard to remember something 40 years ago. Of course it is. It's hard to remember something like a year ago. Remember when the Broncos were good? Oh. Oh. Ouch. Oh, that kills. God says here, Deuteronomy 25, 17. Remember, God says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way when you were coming out to Egypt. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks. You know what that means? Yeah. He came around and poked him in the butt. 
all the strangers, at, stragglers at your rear. When you were tired and weary, he did not fear God. Mm. Therefore it shall be when the Lord God has given you rest from all your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. God is saying this is so important, guys. Remember what the flesh is wanting to do to you. When does your flesh rise up? When you're tired? We've talked about getting hangry, right? How that's the flesh, you know? Oh, feed me. You know, we get, we get tired, we get angry, and uh, that's when our flesh rises up so quickly. So as we're going through this physical description of what happened to Israel in their battle with the Amalekites, remember the Amalekites is your flesh, and Israel is a picture of your spirit that God has given you in Christ, okay? So back to our text in Exodus chapter 17. Then Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And this is the very first time we meet this young man named Joshua. Joshua, okay? First time ever. And Joshua is going to be a picture of, guess who? Jesus. You know what Jesus' name in Hebrew is? Yeshua, which is Joshua, the same exact name. Isn't that funny? It's like God's like, I don't want you to miss this picture. I'm going to give him the same exact name for you. Joshua part one, Joshua part two. This is going to work really easy for you guys. I'm going to make sure you understand Joshua is going to picture Jesus. We're going to get the most explicit and wonderful pictures of of types of Jesus through this guy, Joshua, and the whole word of God um, through this book of Exodus. We're going to see it's amazing. Now, uh, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, I'm going to read to you a text. It says, For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these things are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things you wish. So that's a description of the war that we are going, and Joshua, or Jesus is willing to fight that war. Now, you might not be willing to fight that war every day. Sometimes you just give in to the flesh and let the flesh win. Okay? But Jesus in his spirit is going to come along and say, nope, we're not going to do that. We're going to fight, and I'm going to win because I don't lose. You lose. You're a loser. I am a winner, and I've put my spirit in you so that you cannot lose. This, we're going to see this war played out so clearly. In 1 Peter, again, um, chapter 5, verse 6, it says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, this hand that can't lose, right? That he may exalt you in due time. And then verse 10, But may the God of all grace, who has called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect and establish and settle you. Okay? The suffering a little while is this battle that you're going to go to. You will have to go through a short battle that will be difficult. It will be hard where your, your flesh is going to feel like it's winning or battling. Okay, And after a little while, Jesus says, I'm going to win. The mighty hand of God cannot lose. And you will be now an undivided kingdom. You will be 
We don't want a divided kingdom, half of our flesh ruling our lives, half of our spirit ruling our lives. Well, before I get my coffee, the flesh is the king of my life. <laughs> After I get my coffee, I can be in the spirit, right? People have those <laughs> jokes and memes on, on Facebook, and it's just so not right. <laughs> but the flesh life does not die easily, but it does die at the hand of Jesus, Okay. So Joshua did as Moses said to him. Look at it, it says. And he fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held his hands up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hands down, Amalek prevailed. Flesh does not beat flesh. Joshua, it doesn't mention how big his biceps were. It doesn't mention how skilled he was at sword play. It doesn't mention any of that. Because flesh does not beat flesh. The victory over our flesh does not depend on the physical strength or efforts or strategies that you employ. Okay? Like with Joshua, the victory in this battle did not depend on how, what strategy he used. You know, if he went around, if he did all the different warfare strategies, none of it mattered because the only thing that mattered was the position of Moses' hands. And what, why is this in the Word of God? Because God is teaching us an extremely valuable lesson that victory in our battle, in our war between flesh and spirit, has nothing to do with you. And that is one of the most freeing, makes me smile so much because I suck. I don't give enough effort. I don't, I don't have the ability or the wisdom to beat my own flesh. Why do I want such evil things? Why is my flesh so mean to people? I don't know. And I, don't, I can't think hard enough or employ enough strategies, psychological or physical enough, to get that victory. And so it's so nice to just be able to say, I can pray. I can just lift up my hand and say, Lord, I can't do this. You come and deliver me. You fight this battle for me. Moses says, just laid his hand. He says, faith is the key to victory, not physical strength, not strategies. You can be dumb and serve Jesus and have victory over your flesh. For all of you that missed that, Norm was like, yes. I didn't say it. I was, praise the Lord. Faith is the key to this victory. Now, lifting hands is the way Jewish people pray. Even to this day, you go to the Temple Mount, you watch the rabbis, they go like this, and they lift their hands like this. So maybe Moses like this, maybe he's like, I don't know how, I don't know what it looked like. It doesn't matter. He was lifting his hands. And what this is teaching us is prayer. And prayer is, is in line with faith. Trusting in the Lord is the key to victory. In Colossians 4.12, it says, uh, Epaphras, the, um, a bondservant of Christ, greets you always, laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in the will of God. So laboring fervently in prayers. Is not a, it's, that's not a skillful work. It's not a worky work. 
It's a, it's a spiritual work, a spiritual labor, okay? Colossians 4.2 says, Continue earnestly in prayer and be vigilant in it with thanksgiving. We're taught in the New Testament this principle that Moses is teaching us in the Old Testament, prayer is linked to the victory. Zechariah 4.6 says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. John 14 says, how do you get the Holy Spirit? The Father gives the Holy Spirit to anyone who asks. What a well-taught church. Love it. Asks. Asking is prayer, right? It all is a big circle. We just took a big circle theologically to say, ask for it. Pray, lift your hands, and ask for the deliverance and the victory that God says, I will give you. Not by power, nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Look what happens. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Why is God so intense about teaching his people and then remembering that he hates Amalek? That he is going to be at war with Amalek from generation to generation as long as they're alive. God is at war with them, trying to kill them and destroy them. God says this is a very important thing to me. It's because the flesh, your flesh, will ruin your life. If you don't get this under control, if you don't murder your flesh and its desires, crucify the flesh and its desires, it will come back and bite you. And the end will be so much pain and so much misery. Why do you think there's so many divorces? Why do you think there's so many believers who struggle with even substance abuse and other things, they have not, that the flesh has risen up, they have not crucified their flesh, and now the choices of their flesh bring destruction. And God says, I love you, I want the best for you in your life, and your flesh hates you, doesn't want the best. It wants to be satisfied, and its end is death, but it doesn't realize that. It's like drinking salt water. You're drowning, you're, you're in the ocean, and you're like, I'm going to drink some water. What does it do? It just makes you more thirsty. You drink more water, then you bloat and die. It's not good. The flesh leads to death, but we forget this all the time, especially before our coffee, right? I want you to remember someone who forgot this, and his name was Saul. Someone for, Saul forgot this. A few generations later, they're in the promised land, okay? They're living there, and they've been fighting wars, and now they have a king named Saul, 
And God's, one of God's very first commands to Saul was, I want you to go to war with Agag. And who do you think Agag was? He was the king of the Amalekites. Why in the world are there Amalekites in Israel 500 years after they enter the Promised Land? Because Israel has grown accustomed to them. They have made peace treaties with them. They have said, eh, you guys are okay. You guys are actually kind of fun to hang out with. You're fun to have at a party. You guys are neat people, and we kind of like the way you do church, and you're, eh, it's the flesh. They've said, we are okay letting the flesh live. And God comes along the scene. He says, you want to be my king? Okay, Saul, job number one, kill the Amalekites. And Saul says, okay, I'm going to go do it. So he goes out there, and he makes war with the Amalekites. But Agag, the king of the Amalekites, Saul sets him aside, lets him live, and Then Samuel comes in, the prophet, and he's like, why do I hear all these sheep still alive? You were supposed to kill all the Amalekite stuff. And Saul's like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to sacrifice them to the Lord. I want to serve the Lord my way. Not the way he wants. I want to serve him with my flesh still alive. And and then he said, Agag is still alive? Oh, my gosh. So Samuel, being the awesome guy he is, takes a sword and cuts him in half. Love the Bible. Well, the, Saul completely messed that up. And Saul, a few years later, was killed in battle. He got stabbed in the back, and then a young man came up and run his sword through him. And who do you think that young man was? He was an Amalekite one of the sons of Agag. So somewhere between the Saul killing some of them and Samuel killing, Agag got loose, had a kid, and his son ended up being the one who killed Saul at the end of his life. Saul's life becomes a sad story of potential but completely wasted because Saul said, I will do things my way and not the way God has set up. I want to make peace with my flesh instead of kill my, uh, crucify my flesh and its desires. The, it's the self-will that caused the spirit to depart from both Adam and Saul. Adam at one point was right in God's sight, but when he gave in to self-life, I'm going to make the decision about what tree to eat from, the You told me what to do, but I want to make the decision. It's me. So he makes the decision, gives into the self-life, spirit departs from him. Saul, same thing. Okay, God, I'm about your will. All right, kill the Agag. No, I want to do what I want to do. My will, not your will be done. My will. I want to leave him alive. He's handy. He's fun. Are you still living by your own opinions, deciding what's right or wrong in your own life. And if you are, that means you're living by the flesh, in the flesh. And God will not permit this evil to enter his presence and into his temple. His temple is a holy temple. 
And, G- and the Holy Spirit demands that you're t- you are the temple now, your body. And he says, this is an undivided kingdom. We're not doing both. You are submitted to me and surrender to me or not. Romans 8.8 8 says, those, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. When we decide, I'm making the decisions for my life, you have decided I am living in the flesh. And you cannot please God at that point. You are not a holy temple at that point. Now, the way to become a holy temple again is very simple. Repent. Come back to the Lord and say, I was wrong. I I want to do things your way according to your will. I repent. I'm sorry. Forgive me. It's done. You are holy. But if you say, I'm not going to repent. I'm going to do the way things the way I want to do. And when a church calls me on it and says, you probably shouldn't do it that way, I'm going to get mad and leave. Because I am my own master. I decide. And if a church is doing things right and they call you on it and say, that's not God's will for your life, I'm out of there. There is going to be so many consequences for those choices. God says, Submit to me and surrender to me. I'm a king. I'm not, your, I'm, not, I'm not trying to argue with you. Say, I think you should do your life this way. I think you should live your life this way. I think, no. God says, you will do it this way or you're out. I'm out. I won't necessarily kick you out. I'm out. The Holy Spirit left Adam. The Holy Spirit left Saul. I'm willing to come, but if you don't submit to me, I'm out. Well, Saul wanted to serve God by his best efforts. God wanted obedient faith. Saul had all these ideas. I'm going to use the sheep to sacrifice to God. I'm going to use a malik, you know, because he's, whatever. He had just these ideas. I can do it my own way. And God's like, I wish you would just trust me. Follow me by faith. We're almost done. This is a short Bible study today. We compromise with our flesh to our own peril. We cannot agree with the self-life. We cannot go along with it. Self-sufficiency is the cause of so much weakness and lack of victory in the church today. This is a great victory that Exodus 17 teaches us about today. And we see Joshua is able to bring complete deliverance to the people. He wins this war. Jesus, the greater Joshua, he wins our war too. As we come to him with those lifted hands in prayer and dependence, it's awesome. Let him be our deliverer today. Amen, guys? All right. All right, let's stand up. We're going to sing a Christmas song. (laughs) BK is so excited. Some of you guys have asked about our plan for Christmas and and doing special service and stuff. Right now, our plan is we're going to have a normal Christmas. uh, Christmas Eve is is Sunday, so we're going to have a Christmas Eve Sunday service. Uh, That's our plan for now. If it looks like we need to do two, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. So before we sing this song, 
Jesus um, calls us all. He, he says, I, I am calling out to you. I will save you. I will deliver you. But I'm asking for you to confess your sin to me and, and come to me. And that's what we do when we come to communion. There's communion available. So during this song, you know, as we're rejoicing and thinking about Christmas, just remember it is about coming to him. And he puts that call out to each one of us today. And you don't, you don't have to respond. But if you choose to respond to Jesus, you are giving control up. When, a, when someone surrenders to an army that is stronger than them, they don't get to choose where they go. They don't get to choose what they do. They do as they're told. Now Jesus says, I did not come to destroy your life. I came to give you life and give you abundant life. But it's still under those, that surrender mindset. You do what the Lord asks. And his ask, his command is that we love one another and that we receive what he has done for us. Don't try to earn your way to God. Don't try to earn his blessings. He said, I've given it all to you. Come my way, which is by grace. You come humbly by faith and the Lord will, will lift you up, right? Amen. So if this is the first time that you're, or maybe you've been walking away from the Lord and you want to come back right now is an excellent time to just say, Jesus, forgive me. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to repent. And Jesus, thank you for loving me. And I want to be blessed by you. Amen.